Okay, comrades, this month it is the 150th anniversary of Lenin birth, and it was the 22nd, which the bourgeoisie has taken that name for what they call Earth Day, but we know it as Lenin's birthday, the 22nd of April. And the book we're doing tonight is Left-Wing Communism, an Infantile Disorder, a Popular Exposition of Marxist Strategy and Tactics. Last week we did Why Communists Have to Work and the Trade Unions. The week before that, we had to talk about why we have to work in the bourgeois parliament, contrary to what other groups in the left, the anarchists specifically, and certain groups in the left just on principle do not believe in that. But that's not what Leninists are. So tonight we're going to talk about the subject that says no compromises. And there's a question. It is not an exclamation point. So really, we should say it in this way. No compromises? That's the way it should be said. And Lenin then goes into that. And he gives first examples of the people in the Paris Commune, their positions of how ultra it was, and why their revolution fails, among other reasons. And he quotes them in their manifesto. We are communists because we want to attain our goal without stopping at intermediate stations, which only postponed the day of victory and prolonged the period of slavery. That's the position of the ultra-left from the Paris Commune. Then he goes into the German communists of his day. We consider them ultra, we call them left, L-E-F-T, left communists. And he says that they take for granted that communism will be introduced the day after tomorrow, and that if you don't do it right away, you're not a communist. And he quotes Engels, What childish innocence it is to present one's own impatience as a theoretically convincing argument. Notice the words he uses, childish and innocent, to present one's own impatience as a theoretically convincing argument. In the same article, Engels expresses his profound esteem for other people historically in the left, and he explains why Bolsheviks must permit certain compromises, why it's important that we do that. And he goes on, naturally there are individual cases where we have exceptional difficulty and complexity when the greatest efforts are necessary for a proper assessment of the actual character of this or that compromise, just as there are cases of homicide when it is by no means easy to set up whether the homicide was really justifiable or even necessary. Remember, there was a treaty for Brest-Lavost in the early revolutionary period where Poland was at war with the young Soviet Republic. And what Lenin proposed is that we have to have a peace treaty with Poland because we cannot be fighting on all these fronts. We attained the revolution. We got to now make sure we're not attacked and we got to build up the revolution and find the white forces who were the czarist forces within Russia. That's our main enemy. When he did that, he was attacked by Trotsky at the time, Leon Trotsky, who attacked Lenin and said, you cannot compromise. 
we got to fight the Poles. They want independence from the Russian Empire. We can't allow that right now. And he was defeated, Trotsky, in that particular decision. And it was because of Lenin looking at it historically now, he had the right position. Of course, in politics, it is sometimes a matter of complex relations, national and international, between classes and party. He said, it is much more difficult question of a legitimate compromise in a strike against the boss or a treacherous compromise, he puts it in quotes, by a strike breaker treacherous leader of the union, it would be absurd to formulate a recipe or a general rule that we will never have compromises to suit every single case. One must use one's own brain, this is Lenin, and be able to find one's bearing in each particular instance. It is, in fact, one of the functions of a party organization and of a party leader worthy of the name to acquire through the prolonged persistence and comprehensive efforts of all thinking representatives of a given class. The knowledge and experience, the political flair necessary for the correct solution of a complex political problem. I'm going to stop right there. Is there any questions on what we just read? In reference to Trotsky and his failed attempt to continuing the war against Poland, the reason he went for that is because it was the basis of his fundamental ideology of permanent revolution. He wanted to keep a perpetual war and war communism going till it was spread to all the Western nations. It was a very warmongering, ultra-leftist position. Thank you, comrade. I'm looking at a reference to the Brest-Litov Treaty, which says that the treaty was signed on March 3, 1918, and it was a treaty between the new Bolshevik government and the central powers of the German Empire, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire that ended Russia's participation in World War I. What does Poland have to do with it? The Bolsheviks gave Poland independence. Before that, it was called Congress Poland. It was like a state within Tsarist Russia. It became independent from the Bolsheviks. That's exactly correct. The reason why Trotsky opposed that was because it's part of his permanent revolution thesis. The ultra-left in Germany, which Lenin calls the German left, he quotes from a pamphlet they put out, quote, all compromise with other parties, any policy of maneuvering and compromise must be emphatically rejected. That's the ultra-left from their pamphlet. And Lenin answers, It is surprising that with such views, these ultras do not emphatically condemn Bolshevikism. After all, the German left ultras cannot but know that the entire history of the Bolshevik movement, both before and after the 1917 October Revolution, is full of instances of changes in tactic, conciliatory changes, and compromises with other parties, including the capitalist party! Exclamation point. After the first socialist revolution of the workers and the overthrow of the capitalists in some country, 
The workers of that country remain for a long time weaker than the bourgeoisie, simply because of the latter's extensive international links and also because of the spontaneous and continuous restoration and regeneration of capitalism by the small commodity producers in that country, which has overthrown the capitalists. The more powerful enemy can be vanquished only by exerting the utmost effort and by the most thorough, careful, attentive, skillful, and obligatory use of any, even the smallest rift between the enemies. Any conflict of interest among the capitalists of the various countries and among the various groups or types of bourgeoisie within the different countries by taking advantage of the smallest opportunity of winning a mass ally, even though the ally is temporary, vacillating, unstable, unreliable, and conditional. Those who do not understand this reveal a failure to understand even the smallest grain of Marxism, of modern scientific socialism in general. Those who have not proved in practice over a fairly considerable period of time and a fairly varied political situation, their ability to apply this truth in practice have not yet learned to help the revolutionary class in our struggle to free ourselves from the exploiters. I want to mention something that's very important. The revisionists in our communist movement have used this paragraph to explain why they support the Democratic Party. I want to bring this up now because we have to clarify this. Dimitrov in the 30s called for working with non-communists in the capitalist movement against other capitalists. And they use this as an example of what is going on now. I spoke to people from the CP, and they said the last election we should have supported Obama and Hillary. And the reason is because our job, as Dimitrov said, is to separate and use every inch of separation between the two capitalist movements in order to further their division. And they use Dimitrov in the United Front as an example. I want people to think about what I'm saying now and how do we handle that kind of question. At what point do you draw the line between non-tactical cooperation with a political party and undoctrinal cooperation? We want to actively prevent the rise of fascism First of all, so when you're working with electoral positions or work with organizations, we can't make the same mistakes that German communists made back in the 20s and 30s, where they were willing to let things get worse, and they thought by letting it get worse, it would push people to their side, so we can't allow that. But at the same time, we have to tactically and circumstantially choose on the local and national levels who we're kind of supporting because we have to put people forward that are going to represent the working class to our best extent while still putting out communist values, which is difficult in the center of the empire. But we have to do our best to try to shift the Overton window back to a leftist frame. And that's why you see a lot of communists supporting people like Bernie. 
But Biden, no real communist says, oh yeah, Biden. But Bernie is a little more acceptable because he says things that will make working class people more sympathetic to communist values. Let me add something to this conversation, and we have to go on. The idea of the lesser of two evils. Remember that term and see how that applies to this discussion. And is it a valid turn? I'm not taking a position. I'm trying to be the teacher here. Is it valid to have that position? Does it go along with what Lenin is saying here? Or is the situation only applicable to out-and-out fascists? The United Front dealt with out-and-out fascists. And then the question arises, is Trump a fascist? I'm not answering any questions. I'm just throwing this into the pot for people to think. That's the main thing of the school. How does it apply to us today? I gave you what the CP view is. They use sections of this book to push the Democratic Party, and they've done this in the past. When I was in the CP, I didn't read any classics. None. No Lenin. Nobody in my class, my new members class in 1970, did any of these readings. But I do know the leadership was pushing this particular book, I remember very clearly, to support their analysis. Now, of course, in 1970, the leadership of the CP was not the same as the leadership today. I remember I always had a very negative view of this book until the last few years when I got involved with seeing what the ultra-left does in my years in the PC USA, not in the CP. We have to look at what people like Dimitrov did, what the people in Hungary and Czechoslovakia did. They were working with anybody who was out-and-out anti-fascist. It didn't matter who they were. They were working, for example, in Hungary. They worked with the Small Holders Party. They were an agrarian capitalist party, but they were against fascism. So basically, you draw the line at when state power is established on who you work with. That's when you draw the line. Good point. Thank you. I would say probably in the world today, one of the greatest contradictions would be imperialism. And one of the main reasons we don't support members of the Democratic Party like Clinton or Biden is because their imperialist past. But what about someone like Bernie, who if he were elected, yeah, his statements on Cuba, they're not as good as they should be, but he probably would make things easier for the Cuban people. So do we owe it to our third world comrades to support capitalist Democrats in the imperialist center? What kind of support? are we talking about here? What kind of support can we even give to these people other than voting? When we talk about support, do we mean just verbally saying we're willing to work with them, vote for them, organize for them, hand out stuff for them? What does that actually mean concretely when we say we should support um, somebody? When talking about support, there's two types, tactical and strategic support, and of course outright support, but tactical support is to achieve certain goals. So. We may work with liberal environmentalists to gain concession for shutting down capitalist landfills or something. That is tactical support for something. Or anti-fascism, tactically fighting against a particular enemy. And once that tactical goal has been reached, then you don't have to support that line anymore. I give it a little different nuance. When a party is large, like Lenin's Bolshevik party, and they had people in the Duma, the Russian parliament, 1905 to 1912. When they did that, they were a sizable party. For somebody like the CP today, 
to even talk about it, I think is weird. They're a small little group, mostly non-activists who pay dues and don't do anything. They are active in the Democratic Party, and so as individuals, the party works that way as individuals in leadership positions of local democratic formations of the party. The party in 1936, to talk about it, makes sense. Not today. I happen to know the situation today. It's not the same at all. And our party is very small. Perhaps we can think of the Democratic Party sort of like the reactionary trade unions. We may not be able to convince their leadership but we can probably work with some people to help build class consciousness in the Democratic Party, the actual membership. But as far as voting along that party line is concerned, it has to depend on the candidate. Let me just answer that. Very important. The people that control the Democratic Party is not the rank and file, is not the local. For example, New York City, we had reformed Democratic clubs in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Whenever we came to a position, for example, in Staten Island, we had a group, we called them Reformed Democrats. So we came out against the war in Vietnam. But the head of the Democratic Party, Johnson, and the people after him were for the war. And the people that controlled the party, the moneyed interests, were for that war. So in my opinion, we can work on a local level to get people closer to us but that party can never, ever be seen as an instrument of social change only because the leaders of the party are considered capitalists by their financial interests. They control the party. Remember what they did in 1940s when Roosevelt was dying. They took Henry Wallace, who was pro-Soviet, out of the vice presidency, and they put in Truman. Didn't matter if the people liked Wallace, it was Truman who was put in. To give context to Georgia Dimitrov's idea of aligning with non communists for the sake of a common goal, one, it's not that broad, and two, it's not that simple. Comrade Dimitrov consulted Comrade Stalin for this idea, and it was specifically on Nazi invasion. And Comrade Stalin went as far as to tell Dimitrov that. Even if there's Republicans and conservatives that have a similar view that hate Nazism, then you need to align with them. So this was during the late 1930s when this was happening. And in the mid-1930s, Bulgaria was already aligning themselves with Nazi Germany. They were already giving Jewish people to Germany. So this was a time during war. I don't think that the historical context is comparable to the current moment. But long story short, a lot of these questions can be answered by reading The United Front by Georgia Dimitrov. Thank you, Comrade. I just want to mention, I brought up something and nobody picked up on it. And I think it makes a difference if it's a fascist. I think it's important that we do understand what Trump represents. Is he representing a reactionary trend in this society? I think the answer is obviously yes. Now, here's the next thing. Is Trump similar to the people in Germany before Hitler came in? where he paved the way, as Gus Hall would say, people on the white horse who paved the way for fascism. Or is he a fascist? And I think that's an important understanding of what we're in situation right now. Because I personally don't see Trump as the fascist. 
I see him as the one who's preparing the way for the fascists that can come in the future. He's definitely preparing the way. I'm going to continue reading. Our theory, meaning Marxism, Leninism, is not a dogma. This is according to Lenin. It is a guide to action. And this was said by Marx and Engels before it was called Marxism-Leninism. Remember, during Marx's time, they did not call it Marxism. The greatest blunder, the greatest crime committed by such the so-called, he calls them out-and-out Marxists, and he gives an example, Karl Kautsky, is that they have not understood this and that they have been unable to apply it at crucial moments in the workers' revolution. Quote, political activity is not like the streets of Nevsky Prosk, which is Nevsky Avenue, which is in the Soviet Union in Russia at the time. It's in St. Petersburg, which we used to call Leningrad. So he says, we must strive at all costs to prevent ultras and American revolutionaries, this is a quote from him, that are devoted to the working class from paying as dearly as the backward Russian ultras did to learn this truth. And then he goes into the whole thing, which I thought was extremely interesting. Prior to the downfall of the Tsar, the Russian revolutionary social democrats made repeated use of working with bourgeois liberals. They concluded numerous practical compromises with these bourgeois liberals. And he goes into the period 1901 to 1902, even before the appearance of the Bolshevik Party. The old editorial board of the newspaper Iskra, which at that time was under the leadership of what we call the anti-Bolshevik forces, concluded that the political leader of bourgeois liberalism, while at the same time being able to wage an unremitting and mercilessly ideological political struggle against bourgeois liberalism. And he said the Bolsheviks have always adhered to this policy, but since 1905, they have systemically advocated alliances between the working class and the peasantry. Now, let's compare that with the so-called alliances that the modern followers of Kautsky, who I consider people in the CP leadership now, what they're doing is they tell all their members to go into the Democratic Party, to spend most of their time building the Democratic Party, and voting for the lesser of two evils in the Democratic Party. They claim, this was even as early as Sam Webb, who was the leader of the CP for 10, 11, 12 years, that through the Democratic Party, we're going to get to socialism, little by little. He called it increments. And he wrote this in his pamphlet that he wrote in 2004, in which he attacked Soviet Russia. He said they were never socialist. They were post-capitalist. That's a quote from the general secretary of that party at that time. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics that we as communists supported from 1917 onward was never socialist. This is Sam Webb, that they were post-capitalist. I never heard that term in my life that was made up by him. And that, therefore, we should never have supported the Soviet Union. Gus Hall said, the further you go from Marxism-Leninism, the further you drift. And these people drifted from Marxism-Leninism for years. 
When Gus died in 2000, they completely jettisoned that term. Recently, at their last Congress, they talked about bringing it back, but everybody should know they have no intentions of talking about Marxism-Leninism. They deal with Marxism, period. With the Democratic Party, the point is not really to support or go with the leadership, but like with the reactionary trade unions, try to bring people over to our position. That's always been the position. Georgi Dimitrov, in his excellent book, says, in the United Front, we do not ever stop attacking the leadership of the capitalist parties. That's very important. We continue to do that. We go to the rank and file in the bottom and explain to them why their leadership is against their class interests. And that's not what's going on right now. By accepting the Democratic Party as the leader of a socialist movement, that's doing the opposite. But yeah, I would say that's part of it. I'm still a little confused as to what our particular party line is on working with the Democrats. We have an electoral formula called the three-legged stool. First leg of the stool is running our own candidates under our own name. The second leg is to work with other electoral forces and run an electoral front. For example, working with the tenants union, working with an unemployed council group, working with them, and we formed an electoral front called something like People Before Profits. We did this in New York. That's the second. And the third, if possible, if there is a candidate who is running on one of the two major parties, but their platform is not the same as their party, it's very different. If there are candidates that have a pro-peace, pro-working class, anti-racist, progressive agenda, we can work with them. We are not going to come out and support anybody because we're too small. Could you imagine how ridiculous it would look if the Communist Party supports a candidate? What would the right wing use that information? Is that support really feasible? Do we have the power, the numbers to put meat into that support? Of course not. I was wanting to comment a little bit about my electoral experience working in the CPUSA. As you said, when we had sufficient numbers, we ran our own candidate, and it made sense because we were a force to be reckoned with. We ran candidates for president, and we ran sometimes candidates for senator, and sometimes participated in state and local elections. But more and more, as the numbers of the party dwindled and it became smaller, the politics went with that. And as early as 2004, party members were asked and paid to go to the state where the Democrats were involved in campaigns. I, for example, was asked to go to Arizona and campaign for John Kerry. I didn't campaign for John Kerry directly. I campaigned for Raul Grijalva, who was the congressman there. This is what's going on now, is that because of the numbers, because they are so insignificant, they are retreating and participating in the Democratic Party as an alternative to what should be a class struggle approach. 
it's essential to understand as socialists what not only constitutes a country heading towards socialism, but also a party. What Lenin is saying in this book is essentially that it's a fine line between essentially participating in a bourgeois democracy to the detriment of our movement and participating in it to the benefit of it. So our relationship, whenever we're collaborating with bourgeois parties, always has to be one of taking more than we are giving. Good point. One of the things we've been talking a lot about tonight is compromise as far as when we should and shouldn't. So as far as the example he points to is the Russian Duma. He says that there's times when we did and didn't support the Duma. I'm curious. He says that it's in 1905 and 1906 when they don't support it. Does anybody know why they didn't support it in those years? 1905 was the first rebellion. Essentially, there was a big rebellion against the Tsarist government, and there were strikes all over the country. So naturally, it follows that we weren't participating in the Duma during that time because we were acting against the government. Very interesting and correct. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.